I love to try and be as obedient to the Lord as humanly possible. I had a sense we should pray for people for healing, so if you need healing, please stand up. We're going to pray for you. Upstairs, downstairs. Great. Lovely. All right, so what we're going to do now is I want to ask those of you around, people who are standing, if you can come and lay your hands on them. I'm going to pray for them. I'd like everybody to have at least two people laying hands on them. So we'll give you a moment. Put a hand up if you haven't got two people laying hands on you. Okay. So we're going to pray. I'm going to lead us in prayer. But I want us as a congregation to agree together. Where two or three agree. We want to agree in the name of the Lord. And Lord, we come to you this morning to pray for brothers and sisters, for people who are coming to you and saying, Lord, will you touch my body? Will you touch my life? Will you touch my emotions? And will you bring healing? God, that is the request for the healing power of the living God to manifest in this place today. Lord, we, we come in the name of Jesus because we know you, He has authority over all things. We declare that His name has authority even over the winds and the waves. His name has authority over sickness and disease. His name has authority even over demons. And so we pray in the name of Jesus that there would be healing in people's body this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus that sickness would go in the name of Jesus. We pray this morning that people would be healed in the name of Jesus. We pray this morning that which is broken will come into alignment in the name of Jesus. Father, this is your body. This is your church. And we say today, glorify your name as you heal people. Lord, may glory be brought to you. May you be honored. May people know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, because of the healing power of the Lord here this morning. And so we pray that. Be healed in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. That's my sermon illustration. So, um, so we've been going through 1 Thessalonians over the last number of weeks, and uh, we've got a sort of two-week gap between uh, our next series, and so I got the privilege to be able to choose what I'm going to preach on. And uh, so, which is very interesting because I discovered there's, there's 292 chapters in the Bible and 31, over 31,000 verses You've got to ask yourself, so which one, Lord? <laughs> That's quite a lot of choice that you've got. And uh, so just spend some time uh, with the Lord, praying for what we're going to look at over the next two weeks. And I had a sense the Lord just impressed on my heart uh, a phrase, which uh, I want to 
speaking to this morning, and the phrase is living out of overflow. Living out of overflow. And, 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 and I thought because of the rugby, you're probably so distracted this morning, we need a bit of an illustration. And I, I want to say that the, the Christian life is a life that's a life of overflow. I want to describe it to you. As God is at work within us, so what He's doing within us begins to overflow out of our lives. And so what we see in our lives is an overflow of what He is doing within us. So in, in, in John chapter 15, Jesus gives to us a very interesting description um, of the Christian life. And he describes the Christian life, and, and because it's an example that Jesus uses, I think it's quite important that we take note of it. But he describes the Christian life as being like a branch of a vine that bears fruit. And, and, and that, that branch bears fruit simply because it's attached to the vine. Branch doesn't do anything. It's bearing fruit as a result of the fact that it is a branch of the vine. And in fact, the, the fruit that is evident in a person's life is in fact a good indication whether they have a relationship with Jesus or not. That's, that's fundamentally what that scripture is teaching, is our relationship with Jesus becomes evident in the fruit that we bear. The Apostle John put it like this, and the, the Scripture won't be on the screen, but he says whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. In other words, there is evidence in our lives that we have a relationship with Jesus, or to use the analogy, we are a branch that is attached to the vine. So I'll read that to you. I want us to look at it. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. And then he makes a profound statement. No branch can bear fruit by itself. Say to yourself, I can't bear any fruit on my own. I can't bear fruit on my own. That's a hugely important statement. It must remain in the vine. Neither, and then he emphasizes, neither can, he's speaking to the disciples, neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. He clarifies, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away and it withers. And such branches are picked up and they're thrown into the fire and they're burnt. But if you remain in me and my, I want you to notice this, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And to understand, because this, term, this terminology of, of us remaining in him is kind of, people struggle with it. Well, what, what does it really mean to remain in him? Does it just mean having a relationship? Does it mean, is it talking about how much time I pray? Is it talking about how much time I read? The, what, what, what does it mean to remain in him? Well, I think Jesus brings some clarity to that when he says, if you remain in me and my, 
words remaining. Ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. In other words, the result of God's word remaining in us will become evident how? In the answers to the prayers we pray. Have you noticed what he says over there? If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. That to me is very interesting. That some of the fruit that, that is being spoken about here is an answer to the prayers that you and I pray. In other words, the result of God's word remaining will be evident in the answers to the prayers that we pray. Now, all that is just a little bit of an introduction to what I really want to talk about this morning. If it's God's word remaining within us that causes us to bear fruit, then we've got to ask ourselves, how should we approach God's word? How do we come to God's word so that it becomes effective? Because the way in which, and this is what James talks about, when we're going to read it in a minute, James talks about the way that you and I approach God's word determines the extent to which it shapes our lives, determines the extent to which it renews our mind, determines the extent to which our lives are transformed. So let's look at what James says, because I want us to get very practical this morning. James chapter 1. My dear brothers slash sisters. Okay, all happy? You know, the reason you're chuckling because you know that's true. But he says, if, if I could, I'd underline this for you. Take note. Underline. And here's what he's saying he wants us to take note of. And most people read this scripture wrongly. Because what he's going to talk about is the way we approach the word of God. This is not about how I conduct myself in life. See, most people have said everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I think that's probably a good life lesson anyway. But primarily, he's talking about the way we approach the word. Everyone, everyone, That means all of us should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. He tells us why. For man's anger doesn't bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, he goes on to say, get rid of all moral fault and the evil that's so prevalent. Who's he talking to? Believers. Like, oh! Is that talking about me? And humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Another question. If you are saved, why is he saying the word can save you? I find that a little bit strange. He's talking to believers talking to people that are saved, and he's saying, if you humbly accept the word planted in you, it can save you. 
Then he goes on to say something that's hugely interesting to me. Do not merely listen to the word, and so what? Deceive yourself. When you think about this, he's saying that if a person only listens to the word, and he doesn't do it, you're living in deception. I'm living in deception. I've deceived myself. (laughs) Do what it says. And then he uses an illustration to, James is so passionate that we get the point, he uses an, an illustration all of us are familiar with. How many of you looked in the mirror when you got up this morning? Nobody. Yes? Some of you did. I can see some of you didn't. But he says, anyone who listens to the word and doesn't do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently, what's the mirror, the perfect law that brings freedom and continues to do this, we know he's speaking about the word, not forgetting what he's heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious, now, this is not using religious in the sense that we use it. When people ask you, are you religious? You say, no, I've got a relationship with Jesus. He's using religious in the truest sense of the word over here. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself. Oh, there's that word again. Loose mouths means you might just be, loose lips just might mean you are deceived. And his religion is worthless. That's quite a strong statement, isn't it? Especially for generations that are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all the other ands. We we are regularly expressing ourselves. Religion, he clarifies now, that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows, that's the most vulnerable. Those are the most vulnerable people in society in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. We mustn't lose the relevance of what James is saying over here. He says, what he's saying is fundamentally this, if the word of God is not shaping our thinking and the way we live, then other things will. Things like the values of our culture, Things like the lies of the enemy. Things like our own personal desires. They will start to infiltrate our thinking and our walk walk with God. So what James says here, now James, what I love about James is there's no airy-fairiness about him. It's like down to earth, I'm going to tell you what to do. He's like super practical about what he, he speaks about. 
So he's saying if you want to really benefit, if you want the Word of God to really impact your life, impact your thinking, impact the way that you live, then he says be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. It's there. We Can we put that up? It's there in the Scriptures. In other words, what you and I gain from and what the, the impact that the Word has in our lives is shaped and determined to a large extent by the attitude with which we come to the Word. And James puts it like this, when you read God's word, and when I read God's word, we should expect God himself to speak to us. That make sense? Expect God to speak to us. We should come away when we read the word and when we hear the word with a sense of awe and a, a sense of, of reverence because we know God himself has been speaking to us. See, the Bible's not just a book about God and about what God has done. It is a book with the words of God written down for you and me. Hebrews, for the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And look at this. It judges the Thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It's the one thing that you and I keep hidden from everybody. You've got no idea what I'm thinking about you at the moment. They are good things, I want to assure you. You have got no idea when my attitude has gone wrong, but the Word of God does. So James says, here's his practical advice. Approach the Word of God as a learner. Approach the Word of God as a listener. You see, because He knows something about human nature, most of us want to give our opinion about God's Word rather than receive God's Word. You know what your biggest struggle is, my biggest struggle at the moment, is all the opinions floating around in Christian circles. And you know what their opinion's all about? This book. Have you noticed everybody's got something to say about what God's got to say? And unfortunately, we are getting caught up in that stuff of what such and such says, and this person says, and this person says, and somebody says, I don't believe in hell, and somebody says, I don't believe in this, and how can a loving God do that? And we all are, oh. everybody's got their opinion. See, when we come to, to God's Word, there are two things we need to be alert to. The first one is this, that we need to have our minds renewed. That's why it says we must be quick to listen. He's talking about the need you and I have to have our minds renewed. You, you know the Roman scripture that it says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. How? By your mind being renewed. I don't know about you, but I've realized having my mind renewed is a lot harder than what I thought. You know why? Because I'm being exposed to so many other opinions every day of my life. Because of my own reason, I often come to the Word of God and I try and figure it out. 
Sometimes it's because of what I would like to hear. Sometimes what God says to me, I'm not too comfortable with. And, and our minds are being renewed by God's word. And may I say, a renewed, transformed life is what transforms everything else around us. Your family will be different when you're transformed. A transformed life transforms things around us. So that's the one thing. We need to have our minds renewed. Here's the other thing, which is the more difficult one. We are still in the process of being saved. Get rid of all moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent in our lives and humbly accept the word which is planted in you, which can save you. And you see, we're living in a sinful world. We're faced with temptation. We have an, there's an ongoing battle that we're having with our own sinful nature. And so God's word comes and it saves us. It enables us to be clean. I don't know if you like me, but I find it sometimes I just slip into be being selfish. Sometimes I can be quite unloving. I can say things that are unkind. I can so easily get caught up with materialism. Or I can compromise on issues that, that allow the enemy a foothold in our lives. See, that's why James is saying each day of our lives we need to be saved. We need to be saved from temptation. We need to be saved from the enemy. We need to be saved from ourselves. Or can I put it to you like this? We need to know what the sin of our day is. What is the sin that we are so easily getting caught up with? What is the sin that we so easily fall into? Let me let you into a discussion we had at our pastor's meeting this past week. We were planning, we were planning for the year that lies ahead. And so I, just, I said to the pastors, tell me what's the biggest burden you're carrying? What are, what are some of the things we need to address? The first thing that came out, how do we change a consumer-driven generation? How do we deal with this I come to get? And if I don't get, I'll go somewhere else where I will get. How do you deal with that? May I say to you, I think that's the sin of the church. We've been caught up in consumerism. I think one of the things you and I here living in the southern suburbs have to be careful of is materialism. I, I've been profoundly impacted by what Jesus said to that rich young ruler. And he came to Jesus, and interestingly enough, he said, Jesus, I want to follow you. There wasn't a guy, Jesus wasn't begging him to follow. There was a guy saying, I actually want to follow you. What must I do? Jesus says, go and obey the commands. I want you to hear his response. I've actually done that. I've done it. But then Jesus said to him, and Jesus is always quite perceptive about our lives. He says to him, go and give away everything you've got. Here was a man 
He was able to obey all the commands, but when Jesus put his finger on the issue, couldn't do it. And then Jesus makes that profound statement that his disciples go, what the heck? He said, it's more difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. In other words, it's impossible. And the disciples like, what? Despairing. It's like, ah, what are we going to do about that? And Jesus said, don't worry. With man, this is impossible. With God, it's possible. And the very next example, and I think it's in Matthew 19 or Luke 19, whatever, is the story of Zacchaeus. And you know what Zacchaeus does? He gives away his wealth because he's come to faith. Or should I say, in his coming to faith, he gave away his wealth. And that's a huge lesson to me. And I, I just want to put it out there. Because when, when James speaks about over here the stuff that we get entangled, the evil of our day, I think he's beginning to address the issues we need to understand. The things that have divided us, the things that have separated us in our country. I think those are the sins that are abhorrent in the sight of God. And so we need to be saved. Then James goes on to say something really, to me anyway, it was very unexpected to me because he's writing to Christians. And here's the second point. If we can go to the next slide, please. Don't just listen to the word, do it. Now, why in the world would you say that to a Christian? I mean, don't all Christians obey God? Well, obviously not. Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. I mean, it's really strange that he's saying that. I'll tell you why he's saying it. He's saying it because we are faced with this every day of our lives. It's much nicer to hear and much easier to hear than it is to do. You know that. How many of you have come away from a lovely sermon and said that was great? How many of you went home to do it? How many of you around lunch discussed with your spouse or your friends or your partners or whoever, these are the things God said and I want you to pray for me to help me to do it. I bet you that happens very seldom. How many of us, when we've, we've spent time with the Lord in the, in the Word and God's put His finger on something, you say, like, Lord, I'm committed to do it. You see, James is touching on a very interesting issue. We can feel very spiritual about what we've heard, even if we don't do it. You might have heard me speak about materialism, consumerism this morning, and say, oh, that's not for me. Well, how do you know that? Did you pause for a minute and ask the Lord? Did I stop for a minute? And there are a whole lot of reasons I think these kinds of things happen. One of them is that we become satisfied with hearing rather than doing. Getting intellectually stimulated. I'm not saying that's wrong, but if it stops there, our feelings often dominate what we're doing, don't they? I don't feel. Unbelief. What happens when we don't believe what God said is possible? We park it. Opposition from the enemy. 
when we apply reason to God's word, we often relegate it to a suggestion. I want to say something to you this morning. God never makes suggestions. Have you noticed? I'm, I'm yet to find a place in the Bible. If some of you find it well, this morning, why don't you come and show it to me afterwards where God says, I suggest. Whatever God says, either a command or an instruction. Have you noticed that? But when we apply reason to it, it's like, hmm, God, well, I'm not sure that I agree with you. I'll just leave that for now. It's like, where did that come from? You know, the only reason the early church saw what it did, grew in the way that it did and had the impact that it did, was not because it had better access to the word than you and I did. It's because they simply did it. They simply did it. They loved each other extravagantly. I, I need to tell you the story. Because you tend to remember the stories better than the sermon. When I was doing research for this, this message, because it, you know, it finishes off with the orphans and the widows, but I, I got to reading about how the church, the early church, would, people would minister to one another and meet each other's needs. Now, do most of you know that the early church was really poor? How many of you know that? The majority of believers were, were poor people. And when somebody in the body had a need and said, I'm desperate, I'm destitute, this is what I read and I wanted to share with you. Believers would fast for three days and take the food they would have eaten and gave it to somebody else. See, when we put it into our context, like, People were actually serious about caring for one another. They were serious. They loved extravagantly. They prayed with passion. The church was devoted. Do you remember that scripture? Do any of you remember it? Yes? Acts chapter 2. They devoted themselves to prayer. Do you know what worries me? I think the sign of our independence and lack of trust is our lack of prayer. It's interesting, in all the persecuted countries, one of the highlights of the church is people praying. Because they know every day they are dependent. I think it's a sin of our day that we've become very independent and reliant on all this stuff. They served sacrificially. Do you know, have you noticed there's nowhere in the Bible where there's anybody begging the church members to serve? I hear pastors doing that all the time today. And you know why they did all those things? Just because God said so. Friends, I want you to think about this for a minute. We do what we do because we are hearing from the Almighty. Not our buddy. Not the president. Not somebody, who has, somebody else who has. This is God himself speaking to his church. Do it. Church, do it. Do it. 
But then James goes on to say something even more interesting, and, and that's why I want, wanted you to remember the, the mirror bit. He says, the man who looks, this is verse 25, intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he's heard, but doing it, he'll be blessed in what he does. In other words, he's saying the Bible is your mirror. Here's your mirror for your spiritual life. And he says, this mirror is going to tell you about you. You want to know how well you're doing? Don't ask me. Ask, look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. And then his concern is those who look into the mirror and they forget it, they become deceived. In other words, he's saying as believers, we can be deceived about where we are in our walk with God. You remember the Laodicean church where Jesus has to speak to the Laodicean church and they're saying, we're doing great. And he says, you're doing terribly. How did they know? Because he spoke to them about it. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. You see, we can gain a false impression of ourselves. One of the things I've, I have had to struggle with, especially as a preacher, it's so easy to be caught up with what people think of you rather than what God thinks of you. It's so nice. Oh, I'd love it if every one of you said afterwards you preached such a nice sermon. That's my danger. That's my problem. I can have such a false impression of my walk with God because you praised me for a sermon. Jesus never said that he's pleased with me because I preached a good sermon. Jesus said he's pleased with me because I honored him and I obeyed him. That's the only thing. Do you remember right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes this like radical statement. He said, many of you will say before me on that day. It's like, Lord, we cast out demons. Whoa, we were so spiritual. God, you know what? We even did miracles. Wow. Did you hear that, Lord? Did you notice what I was doing? I taught Sunday school. Lord, I went to church every Sunday. He said, I'm going to say to some people, away from me, I do not know you. Those people were deceived. They were deceived. Okay, I want to stop being so heavy now. How do, you, how do you deal with this? How should we approach God's Word? And there are four things, four suggestions I want to make to you this morning. Number one, read it until God speaks. If this is God's Word and God is speaking to you, then read it until He speaks to you. Until you and how do you know that? Well, I think that story of the, the, the people on the road to Emmaus tells us, as Jesus started to speak and, and unpack the word to them, their hearts began to burn. Something stirs within us. You, you might not even know 
what God is really getting at. But you have a sense of, as I'm going along and as I'm reading, I have a sense God is trying to say something to you. Now, you might just, like, you might be in a verse and you say, like, how can God be speaking? But you have a sense there's something going down here. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does. The reason the Holy Spirit is in us, He starts to stir us every time God speaks to us. That's what He's there for. And then the next step is the most important. And I'm sorry to say to you, as a busy culture, you're going to need some time for this. Because once he started to stir, then you need to go deeper. Then you've got to start searching. Then you've got to start praying. Then you've got to start exploring. What have other people said so that I can gain maximum value of what he is saying to me? There's a 1 Corinthians, can we put the other, I haven't got that scripture, don't worry. But it's 1 Corinthians 2, 10 to 13. It speaks about, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who's from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. That's the first one. Read it until God speaks. Secondly, believe the Bible. So John, don't talk rubbish. I mean, we believe the Bible. Oh, yes? Isn't it strange, but... I've noticed that when people, what the Bible says clashes with reason or experience, we park it rather than allowing our minds to be renewed, our belief systems to be shaped, and our behavior to be changed. I've noticed every time what the Bible says clashes with what our reason tells us or what our experience tells us, we actually have a lot to say about it. That's quite a scary thing. That tells me fundamentally we may need to go back to God and say, I repent. I repent because I have selectively looked at your word and selected the selection has been on the basis of my reason and my experience. How arrogant is that? Do you ever, do some of you remember the very first message that Jesus preached when he starts preaching? It says, here it is, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What's the word repent mean? Does anybody know what it means? Turn away? Yep. But it means something more than that. And I'd love you if you could get it this morning. The word repent is the word metanoia. It means to change your mind. You see, it's the person who's changed their mind who changes their behavior. We've missed a step. What is Jesus saying? Jesus starts to minister and he says to people, change your mind about the way you see things because there is another kingdom that's just come. And this kingdom is going to be vastly different to the kingdom you're familiar with. So you need to change your mind about a lot of things I'm going to say. We need to believe the Bible. Every bit of the Bible. Third thing, expect a truth encounter. <laughs> expect a truth encounter. I'd, I, I, I'm sure many of you remember that, uh, that, that scripture uh, in Matthew where Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tempted. Now, what the very first thing the devil does? He says these words, if you are the son of God. It's like Jesus just heard him speaking. When he got baptized, you are my beloved son, I'm well pleased with you. Here's the devil. 
Friends, if the devil did that with Jesus, he's going to do that with you and me as well. You will have a truth encounter. And the truth encounter is this. Don't believe what God says. And then remember the words of Jesus. Man shall not live by bread alone. Whatever you're going to have for lunch. It's going to live by every. Fourth thing. Pray to obey. Pray to obey. I've discovered in God's word, you're going to discover him saying things that sound absolutely impossible. I'll tell you what my big one is. I don't know what yours is. Here's my big one. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's like my total nemesis. I mean, some of us struggle just to get on with our spouses, never mind our enemies. And, and the, the reason that gets me is because I, I see what sometimes our enemy, what people have done to one another is terrible. And Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute. I mean, that's beyond my ability to figure out. I think one of the things I loved about Nelson Mandela was his ability to forgive. You know that I met him one day. Still haven't washed my hands. So. <laughs> After all that was done to him. When I say pray to obey, it's when I come to the place where God says to me, John, I want you to do that. And I say, God, absolutely impossible. And he says, right, go for it, pray. For he is able to do far beyond that which you can even ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within you. Do you, we, you know how we can be transformed when we pray to obey? Let me finish off because James describes what starts to happen when we come to God's word and we listen. And secondly, when we put it into practice, he says a miracle starts to happen. And I'm not going to be long on this, but let me touch on it. He says there are three things that are going to happen. The first one is that self-control will become obvious in our lives. I'll read it to you in case you didn't get it. Anyone who considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue. What's that got to do with self-control? Well, just go to James chapter 3 and verse 2 and listen to what he says. If anyone's never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man able to keep his whole body in check. If you can control your tongue, everything else falls into place. He said, you know what? The fruit of listening and doing is a transformed life. I would suggest to you this morning, one of the most overlooked aspects of, of the gifts, or the, rather the fruit of the Spirit, is self-control. Self-control. Second thing that starts to happen 
is that our care for and our looking after the most vulnerable becomes a very normal part of Christian life. It speaks about the religion the God and Father that, that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless is to look after orphans and widows in their distress. I always like to try and remember people that I've met in my journey who've put this into practice, not just had a sermon on it or thought about it or got blessed by it. There was a couple in our church in East London. They were retired. They had bought a little home out at one of the resorts outside of East London. And when they became aware of the desperate need amongst kids in South Africa, the number of orphans, they said, we cannot rest and relax in our pension and let that just go. They sold up their house. They got six kids and they fostered them with their learning disabilities, with the struggles of the way that they've been brought up, with the rebellion, with their, their, all of the stuff that came with it. They did it in their retirement. And the last message I had of this couple, Diane in particular, your name, she was coming back, I think from the school or from the doctor with one of the children in the car. And she suddenly pulled the car off to the side of the road, switched off the car and died of a heart attack. She knew she was having a heart attack. She died caring for orphans. Guys, that's what happens when we listen and obey. That's the kind of transformation that takes place. And the third thing James says, which is also very interesting, we stay pure in a polluted world. I don't know if you like me, but... I find it hard going sometimes. Find the stuff around me is not easy. But I know as I sit in the Word and as I pray for God's enabling, I discover in me a miracle that I cannot understand. I become more like Jesus even in my culture, even in the world that I'm living. See, let me finish off with my illustration again. This is the Christian life. It's an overflow. See, I can't do it on my own and nor can you. But when he is at work within you, when he's at work, when he's at work, the fruit becomes evident. Let's pray. I think we're living in quite, to me, quite exciting days. And they're exciting days in the sense that unless God comes through for us, unless God is at work in us, unless God really changes us, we're going to get caught up in all of the stuff around us. And yet I'm discovering people experiencing 
the transforming power of the Word. People who are getting their minds renewed. People who are beginning to embrace that truth where it says, He is able to do far beyond, far beyond that which you can even ask or imagine by His power at work in us. I mean, that's miraculous stuff. That means I can be different. I can be what Jesus says about me. I can live the life that He's calling me to because of Him, because of the overflow of what He's doing in our lives. And I pray in Jesus' name this morning for overflow in our lives, for an overflow of the work of the Spirit, for an overflow of the work of the Word of God, for an overflow of renewed minds. God, I pray. May we be like Jesus. And I pray it in His name. Amen. Amen.